1: Hi, this is Anna Hosniang. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablinya Chakraborty, And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And since we're in the middle of Atlantic hurricane season in our part of the world, and maybe it's Also a little bit, because it's been really stormy here all week, so we've got storms on the brain, we thought it'd be interesting to take a look at some historical storms. After all, the truly big ones really are kind of characters in their own right, and they often change the story of whatever area they decide to visit and the lives of the people who live there. I think that's
2: really... um emphasized by the fact that we give them names now, so they really do have sort of a personality, and those names become almost taboo in the immediate years after a really big storm hits. They do. And I think that's especially true with Hurricane Katrina, so a recent storm In recent history, you know, we're not going to be talking about Katrina on the podcast today, but it certainly comes to mind if you're thinking about really giant storms in the United States.
3: Right. It was a Category 5 storm, led to severe flooding and spawned tornadoes that killed around 1,800 people across several states. But as Sarah said, we're not going to get into Katrina in this podcast so much today, but it did get us thinking a lot about some of the most destructive storms that left their marks on the world over time. So we're going to take a look at just a handful of those. We're not going to cover them all by any means today, but we're going to take a look at a few that we think are pretty interesting.
2: We are. So we're going to start back in 1925 with a tornado and most of the storms we're going to be talking about are hurricanes or cyclones um, cyclones in the um, the non-american sense of Dorothy and Oz but this one is a true tornado the tri-state tornado and your average tornado is about 500 to 2,000 feet wide and it travels at about a speed of 30 miles per hour so Pretty scary, even if you just leave it at that. We had a, a tornado in Atlanta a few years ago. went right through downtown. It was a
3: scary storm. It was, but this next entry on our list, the 1925 Tri-State Tornado, was massive enough to leave that tornado. And most typical tornadoes that we encounter in this country in the dust. It formed at about 1 p.m. on March 18, 1925, somewhere around the town of Ellington in southeastern Missouri. And it was nearly a mile wide, moving at an average speed of about 62 miles per hour, and at times even up to 73 miles per hour. It was possibly because of that great width that a lot of people who saw the storm coming didn't even realize at first that yeah, it was a tornado. It looked like a cloud wall. Right. And according to an article by Sean Potter and WeatherWise Magazine, magazine, W.F. Haywood, who was the postmaster for Ellington, made one of the first recorded sightings of the tornado, and he just observed it as a, quote, blue-black cloud mass that was coming toward them. He was lucky, though, compared to some who didn't even see it coming at all.
2: Yeah, people described being in buildings when windows suddenly started to shatter, walls came crumbling down, whole houses were just lifted off the ground. Yeah,
3: Wizard of Oz style.
2: Definitely, and... and. Too late if you realize you're in a tornado, but it moved quickly, too. So even though it was so giant, it was moving along at quite a cliff. It covered a lot of ground. It hit parts of Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana, traveling a total of 219 miles in only three and a half hours, which was more than 36 times as much as an average tornado covers, more than uh, 36 times as much ground.
3: In an article in American Heritage, Wallace Aiken calls it, quote, the longest uninterrupted track on a record. In total, 695 people were killed, and more than 2,000 were injured as a result of the storm. 15,000 homes were destroyed. The town that was hardest hit, which is the one we want to kind of give a few details about, was Murfreesboro, Illinois. 234 people died in that town alone, and that set a record for the most tornado fatalities in a single place. And Aiken, the writer that we just mentioned, he was actually a toddler living in Murfreesboro when the tornado struck, and his article that we mentioned relates some stories of residents and others who lived through the experience. I think he also has a book on the subject. And one one story that he relates that I found particularly chilling involves the town's children who were in school at the time that the tornado struck. The school building basically collapsed on the kids. 25 died. Some who survived struggled out from under the debris on their own and headed for their homes. You know, It's a natural instinct for a kid. You know, I'm going to head for home. I'm going to find my my family but they found in many cases that their homes were completely gone even entire neighborhoods had vanished That's so
2: scary um, one friend of Aikens recalled reaching his home what he what should have been his home which was nothing but an open field with her grandmother in the middle of it decapitated and still sitting in her rocking chair so completely horrifying. Site after surviving an already horrifying situation.
3: Yeah, and horrific sites like these seem pretty typical for those who managed to live through that initial chaos, since there were plenty of dead and injured people around who needed tending to medical teams and supplies started to pour in from all over the country. One point that I thought was interesting, according to Potter's article, Chicago even offered up some liquor that had been confiscated by the federal government after some prohibition raids. And so they quote, made this available in a medicinal way to the storm sufferers. (laughs) There is a silver lining. Um, to this disaster in a way it raised public awareness about tornadoes. I was really interested to find in this Popular Mechanics article, John Galvin writes about how even using the word tornado was considered taboo by the National Weather Service at this time. Basically, because tornadoes were so unpredictable, talking about them was thought to cause pointless panic.
2: So don't let people know until their houses are rattling.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they exactly looked at it that way, but um, I I guess they just thought there was really no use since they couldn't couldn't really forecast them. Right. But after the tri-state tornado, local tornado spotting networks started popping up. So people were more aware and were taking steps to protect themselves a little bit. And, of course, researchers know so much more about tornadoes now than they did back then, so much so that in recent years, some have suggested that the tri-state tornado might have actually been a family of tornadoes, not one single tornado, that was caused by a supercell thunderstorm.
0: and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling, amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
3: So this theory hasn't been definitively proven, and I guess may never be, but this remains the single deadliest tornado in history because they can't prove that it was a family of tornadoes.
2: Well, so now that we've discussed that type of storm pretty thoroughly, we're going to move on to hurricanes. And we're going to be talking about a few hurricanes in this episode. And the first one is the Great Hurricane of 1780. And today we're lucky that meteorologists have the knowledge and the technology to estimate the strength of storms and even predict their potential paths to some degree. So, you know, you were just talking about you couldn't tell where tornadoes were going. Imagine if you couldn't tell really where a hurricane was going to go. I know it's still a little up in the air, but they can give you some warning. But when you're talking about a storm like the next one on our list, though, which happened more than 200 years ago, of course there was not that luxury. So modern researchers have had to piece together some details regarding characteristics of the great hurricane of 1780 based on anecdotal evidence of the kind of destruction that it caused, sort of having to look back at it and figure out what the storm was really like.
3: Yeah, and that destruction that you just mentioned was really significant, to say the least. The fact that just considering the fact that it stood out so much in what was already an active hurricane season that year should hint at that, but the death toll also speaks for itself. More than 20,000 people in the Eastern Caribbean lost their lives. According to the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Response Agency, researchers estimate that the hurricane formed in the Atlantic and moved westward very slowly at about six nautical miles per hour. The storm got to Barbados on October 10th, where according to Encyclopedia Britannica, it destroyed nearly all the homes on the island And about 4,500 people lost their lives. The hurricane went on to hit pretty much every island from Tobago to the Leeward Islands to Hispaniola. But the biggest death tolls came out of Barbados and Martinique, where 9,000 people died, and also St. Eustatius, where 4,500 people also died.
2: Researchers also believe that the Great Hurricane was a category five with winds greater than two hundred miles per hour. And again, they've guessed that, pieced it together just from reports of the storm damage and examples of anecdotes that were offered up by the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Response Agency. One of those examples came from a letter sent in December of that year from Sir George Rodney and he wrote about the events in Barbados and said, quote, the strongest buildings in the whole of the houses, most of which which were stone and remarkable for their solidity, gave way to the fury of the wind and were torn up to their foundations. All the forts destroyed and many of the heavy cannon carried upwards of a hundred feet from the forts. Had I not been an eyewitness nothing could have induced me to have believed it more than 6,000 persons perished and all the inhabitants were entirely ruined. So pretty serious. I mean, the the sight of cannons blowing up into the air, I think that's the strongest point he makes there.
3: That's true. But I think this other point made by Dr. Gilbert Blaine in a letter that he wrote is also very interesting. He says, quote, what will give a strong an idea of the force of the wind is anything. Many of them and the trees is what he was referring to were stripped of their bark. So today we know that this hasn't been observed in hurricanes where winds are about 200 miles per hour. And that's why researchers guessed that the winds had to be greater than that. So, and I think
2: that's so neat that they can compare the, the history of, of other trees and other wind speeds and figure out this one from 1780.
3: Yeah. And the casualties here weren't all on land either. Also of historical note here is that the American Revolution was going on at the time that this hurricane struck, which meant that plenty of European naval forces, both British and French, were concentrated in the Caribbean. So thousands of soldiers died as their vessels were damaged, destroyed, swept away. Encyclopedia Britannica says something like more than 40 French ships sank near Martinique alone. And this is something I have never heard mentioned when you learn about the American Revolution.
2: Um, It seems like it had to... I've shaken people up a little bit at least. But okay, so the next storm we're going to talk about is certainly we're jumping ahead quite a bit. It's a more modern storm. And it's one that I'm guessing a lot of you, especially if you're in the United States, have probably heard about before. It has the distinction of being known as the greatest
3: natural disaster in U.S. history. Yeah, it took place in Galveston, Texas in 1900 and is sometimes known simply as the Galveston Storm. Galveston at the time was one of the wealthiest cities in America and it was the largest city in Texas and a big trade center. A boom town, really. Located on a barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico, Galveston had gotten the message before that it should do some storm preparation, including maybe constructing a seawall and they'd seen nearby towns destroyed by hurricanes in previous years but they still didn't make any moves to fortify the city prior to 1900. The city got its first inkling that a storm was headed its way in early September of that year, and what started out as an area of, quote, unsettled weather near the Windward Islands became a tropical storm that moved over Cuba and hit Louisiana and Mississippi on the way to Texas. So by the time it reached Galveston, though, on
2: September eighth, 1900, it was about a Category 4 hurricane by modern estimates. Again, meteorologists are having to do some backtracking here. When it first reached Galveston in the morning, it caused some flooding, but it was still sunny out. And according to an article by Chuck Lyons in History Magazine, most locals weren't too concerned about the storm. They'd seen big storms before living on the Gulf. They thought they could, quote, ride it out, as sometimes people do in big storms like this. But... As the day went on, the wind started to pick up, and it ultimately reached estimated speeds of about 120 to 135 miles per hour. The highest speed recorded was actually 100 miles per hour, but there's a note there. The wind instrument was destroyed shortly after
3: taking that measurement, so we can assume it went quite a bit higher than that. The flooding also got much worse. The rain just kept coming, and the tidal surges reached from 8 to 15 feet. People started heading upwards, trying to get to the highest points that they could in their homes, but it didn't really help. The surges swept up homes from the foundation, and the wind was just throwing trees and other objects around, so it was just utter chaos. And we should
2: note, too, that as a barrier island, Galveston, of course, was very low low to the sea. That's true. (laughs) There was no high ground to really get to. According to another article by Potter in Weatherwise magazine, the entire south, east, and west areas of the city were just wiped out. Pretty much all the houses were just swept away. Most other buildings were destroyed, too. There were debris everywhere. There were bodies alive and dead trapped under the buildings. Potter quotes Isaac Klein, who was in charge of the Galveston Weather Bureau office at the time, as saying the site the
3: next day was, quote, one of the most horrible sights that ever a civilized people looked upon. Anywhere between 6,000 and 12,000 people died as a result of this hurricane. Estimates usually sort of waver around, I guess, 6,000. But as
2: many of these storms, as they do for many of these storms, we have huge spans of, of numbers here.
3: Yeah, and the exact number of people who died may never be known. People were drowned, of course, crushed by debris, and nearly 90 kids in a local orphanage were killed. Just an example of some of the people who died in this storm. About 30,000 were left homeless, too. Relief came in from other areas of the country, but there were so many dead, bodies had to be burned for weeks after the storm because there was just no way to bury them all efficiently. Galveston never quite recaptured the prominence that it once had, according to Lyon's article, but it did survive and managed to rebuild. One of the results of what happened, in 1902, the city started building a 17-foot seawall to protect itself, and houses and buildings were kind of raised up to that level, too. So there's more awareness, again, to keep this from happening.
2: Yeah, Galveston really ended up having to almost raise the entire city, so they'd be a little safer. They did. So we're going to be moving on now to another hurricane. But before we do that, we need to discuss the relative merits of coastal living and inland living. And I'd say one of the obvious perks of living by the coast is that you're near the beach. But one of the upsides of living far inland is that you're usually spared the full brunt of a hurricane, plus really terrifying side effects like uh, tsunamis uh, if if you're in cyclone territory, or storm surges.
0: Sistine Chapel so it's going to be a fantastic trip you can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuffy missed in history class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there too
2: there's a city far away
1: a fiction podcast.
3: The richest, most powerful place on earth.
1: On an epic scale. Tumen Bay. Tumen Bay. Tumen Bay. A vast empire threatened
3: by rebellion. Power is everything, power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. <laughs> the truth makes
1: us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide.
3: They are among us.
1: Who?
3: First a few, and now many.
1: From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker.
3: The only thing I ask of you
0: is total and complete loyalty.
1: Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumen Bay.
3: Be sharp and die!
1: Listen to all episodes of Tooman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Toombe.
2: You're not completely off the hook, though, unfortunately. In 1928, an extremely rare natural disaster occurred. It was a freshwater storm surge at Lake Okeechobee in south-central Florida, which is just north of the what we think of the Everglades today and 40 miles northwest of Palm Beach. And that surge, plus the effects of the hurricane itself, killed up to 3,000 people, meaning that it came pretty close to Galveston, depending on which numbers you're using for Galveston as the deadliest storm in U.S. history.
3: In the early 20th century, South Florida underwent a huge development boom, just to give you some background on this area. Areas like Palm Beach, which is an Atlantic barrier island, attracted the wealthy, while many of the inland Everglade areas, including the area around Lake Okeechobee, were drained for agriculture. And according to NOAA, only about 50,000 people were living in South Florida at the time. So migrant laborers from Mostly the Bahamas arrived to do the farm work and set up small towns around the lake.
2: So those are our two focus areas. Really different worlds economically, but both clearly very vulnerable to weather. One, a barrier island, always vulnerable. The other, small towns with shoddy structures sitting plumb next to one of the largest freshwater lakes in the country that only happen to be about 12 to 15 feet above sea level. So again, according to NOAA, the storm we're discussing... First hit land about September 12th, 1928. 300 people were killed when it swept over Puerto Rico. From there, it moved through the Bahamas and hit the mainland on September 16th, right in Palm Beach County. And the coast was really badly damaged by the wind, the storm, but warnings had allowed many people to evacuate or to take cover inland, though, water from the storm caused Lake Okeechobee to start to pool. You know, we mentioned that it's a very large lake. It's also a very shallow lake. And finally, it broke through this short, inadequate muck levee that was meant to protect the settlements to itself. And the freshwater storm surge then, at that point, rose about 12 feet around the lake, drowning people in the low-lying area and flooding towns like Belle Glade, South Bay and Canal Point, as well as other towns. And we mentioned a minute ago that the death toll could have been as high as 3,000, but there have been so many recalculations regarding this storm over the years. And I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of discrepancy in many of these numbers, and we'll discuss some of the reasons for that more later. But for this storm, it seems like there were some racial politics involved. Different sources from immediately after the flood ranged from 1,000 dead from the Miami Herald to 2,300 dead in the Miami Daily News.
3: So let's talk about that for a second. Why was there so much confusion and miscalculation? According to the American Meteorological Society and Russell Post, an estimated three-quarters of the dead were field workers, mostly non-white migratory workers. Many of them were only known to even friends by their nicknames. Many of the bodies were lost. Post article includes a quote describing how the surge carried people into the, quote, sawgrass wastes. And the search for bodies ended November 1st because of lack of funds. So they A just... mixture of,
2: of not being able to actually locate the bodies and just not knowing who was there
3: alive in the first place. Right. Many of the black dead and some of the white dead also were buried in segregated mass graves. Simultaneous segregated memorial services were held Sunday, September 30th, 1928, in West Palm Beach. Mary McLeod Bethune attended one of the black services. She was a big
2: civil rights activist and educator at the time. Economically, though, the storm was also really damaging. It caused an estimated $25 million in damages, which is now equal to about $16 billion if you adjust for wealth, population and inflation according to Post. It also ended the boom of the 1920 South Florida development because only two years earlier there had been a similarly large storm that had destroyed a lot of Miami. So people buying their luxury houses were starting to realize this was a risky area to live in. And th- that's why this one reminds me so much of the Galveston storm because it really affected the whole trajectory of the, of the city and the area. Right
3: another note here of the literary variety. Okeechobee, if it rang a bell for you, it might be from reading Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Not to give anything away, but it's a major plot device between the heroine and the character Tea Cake. Floridian Hurston hadn't been in the state during the storm, but according to Valerie Boyd, she combined her interviews with survivors plus her own experience in a storm in the Bahamas in, in 1929 to create a realistic scene there. And
2: I, I have to say, it's probably been about 10 or so years since I read that book, yeah, but I can too. remember the, the storm scene. So our final storm for this list is the Bola Cyclone of 1970. And many of the storms we've discussed so far have been truly extraordinary storms, truly large storms. The Bola Cyclone, though, could have been just an average or maybe even under the right circumstances, a mild storm had it not hit where it did and had it not hit when it did. As it worked out, though, the storm, which is also called the ganges Brahmaputra Delta Cyclone, became one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, tropical cyclone on
3: record. It's also one of the world's worst natural disasters. The storm formed over the Bay of Bengal November 8, 1970, and this was after the traditional season's end. So most people weren't even expecting more storms and were already kind of at max flood capacity for the year. It was also headed for the Ganges Delta, which was then a part of East Pakistan and one of the flattest, most flood-prone regions of the world. Flooding is expected. It's what delivers the rich sediment that makes the soil so fertile, but it also makes the land unstable since many rivers crisscross the region.
2: Yeah, for instance, many structures are built on these small sediment-made islands that only last a few years. You know, the sediment washes away, new islands form. So understandably, building temporary structures like this, you don't build really solid ones, really sturdy buildings and houses. But because the soil in this region is so rich from all that sediment, the delta is also one of the most densely populated areas of the world, really comparable to the Netherlands, which is, I think, Europe's most populated country, or densely populated rather. Um, According to Benjamin Riley in Disaster in Human History, Case Studies in Nature, Society, and Catastrophe, In the decade before the flood, the population in this Delta region had increased by about 30 percent, meaning that farmers were already having to push further into the mangrove forest buffer by the coast in order to eke out a living. And it also meant that the population was really young. There were a lot of
3: very young children at the time. So already, there's this out-of-season storm, and it was the sixth of the season, and it's in a flood-prone area with a dense population living in mostly temporary housing. So just to set the scene right there, the storm made landfall as a Category 3 cyclone with a peak speed of 115 miles per hour. It hit right at high tide on a full moon night when people were sleeping. Many of the migrant workers who had arrived for rice harvest were sleeping outside, The storm surge created by the cyclone reached about 19 feet, wiping out everything that it hit. Since there wasn't high ground, people climbed trees only to find themselves surrounded by snakes.
2: And there's a really odd story. I mean, I'd say take it with a grain of salt, but it's mentioned by Riley. He discusses a Mrs. Kareem who credited a constrictor with saving her life. So most people, I'm sure, if you found yourself suddenly in the tree with lots of snakes, that would be it. But she remembers... uh, Losing consciousness, but at that moment being wrapped up by a constrictor who was really just trying to cling to anything on the tree and it ended up saving her life and the life of her newborn child. So kind of a wild storm story there, but I guess you never know what, what can happen in, (laughs) in incidents like these. The death toll, though, was initially estimated to be at about 225,000, but it could have been as high as 500,000. And again, just like we discussed with the Okeechobee hurricane, there are a lot of reasons for why there's so much discrepancy here. And again, one is that there were probably a lot of migrant workers among the dead, and nobody knew who was there, nobody knew who they were, plus undocumented residents, you know, just people who hadn't registered in any sort of way. And we mentioned this earlier, lots of young children. So maybe they weren't even on the books
3: yet. After the storm, hundreds of thousands of people were left without food. And since it had almost been harvest time, there were no stores of anything either. Agricultural equipment had been washed away. Salt water had inundated farmland, livestock had drowned, the fishing industry was destroyed, and drinking water was contaminated, and people contracted cholera from that. Many
2: people were injured, too, after such a, a traumatic survival situation. They had broken bones, they had abrasions on their arms and their chests and thighs, uh, something that relief workers Alfred Summer and W. Henry Mosley called, quote, cyclone syndrome, or, quote, the grim evidence of the tenacity with which the survivors had Clung to the trees to withstand the buffeting of the waves. So um, just tearing yourself up trying to, to save your life during the storm surge. Then, despite all of these problems, you know, despite the, the starvation and the injuries, the government wasn't able to respond for 10 days, which was something that ultimately heightened tensions between East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And much of the relief ultimately ended up coming from India and the United States and later Great Britain and China, which sent rice supplies for the people. So when an already scheduled December election rolled around, uh, a lot of new opposition politicians ended up being elected, And ultimately, after a civil war, East Pakistan became the independent country of Bangladesh. And one of its earliest goals, understandably, after all of this, was to set up better storm surge alerts so that people could be more prepared for something like this happening again.
3: Just a side note here, Hassan Mashriqui, a professor at LSU, got a map of Bangladesh from his father-in-law. He scanned the map for part of his work predicting storm surges in the Gulf of Mexico since he wanted to work on developing similar models for Bangladesh. He ended up creating an early warning system, which was tested in 2007 when Mushrikli noted a huge cyclone forming in the Bay of Bengal. The way he went about spreading
2: those warnings, though, it sounds so roundabout. It's amazing that... That it actually worked, but he began communicating once he noticed this huge storm forming. began communicating with the U.S. Navy to find out how much the government uh, in the in the area knew about what was going on, what kind of warnings were already in place. And when he realized from family that the storm wasn't really being treated very seriously, he got in touch with a food and disaster official in Bangladesh via his LSU freshman son and began sharing information, began tracking the storm, and many people were successfully evacuated from the areas identified as most at risk. And he also helped retroactively target rescue efforts. Here's where the storm went. Here's where you need to go. More than 3,000 people still died, which sounds like a huge number, but it was far fewer than a lot of the earlier cyclones, including, of course, the Bola cyclone that we already talked about.
3: So I guess that's promising that in most of these stories, we've seen some sort of progress Technology at the end. Technology
2: upgrade, yeah. whether it is building a wall, <laughs> you know, acknowledging the fact that your city is in pretty serious danger or uh, having some sort of software, having an early warning system in place can save lots of lives.
3: Yeah. And just that awareness that. People have. I mean, it's sad, I guess. Taking it seriously. Yeah, taking it seriously, not thinking that you're going to ride it out. I mean, I, I lived on the Gulf Coast for a while, and so I can relate to that idea that so many people just get numb to the experience that they just think they can you know, they can hang out during the storm. They're like, we've been through this before.
2: Going through false evacuations. Right. Know, evacuations that come to nothing. Mm-hmm. But better safe than sorry?
3: Definitely. It's funny, too. We all kind of have our own sort of storm stories. I don't know if you have any that you remember, Sarah. Maybe tornadoes that you have hunkered down through I remember, or...
2: yeah, I remember being a very little kid and there being a tornado in Atlanta and I was at ballet class. I was probably about <laughs> three or four and I remember all the little kids getting taken to the basement and we had a very hungry caterpillar read to us. That's oh. my my biggest scary storm memory, I think. That's which a is nice pretty way good. Way to write out
3: a storm. <laughs> yeah. I remember um when I was living In Mobile, I had to, I think this was 98, we had to evacuate when Georges came. And I had a kind of beat up Toyota Paseo that I drove at the time. And I remember (laughs) driving upstate to where my parents live and just kind of blowing all over the road. And for the first time, because I like little cars, but I was thinking, I really wish I had like one of those big, yeah, (laughs) something really heavy to kind of anchor me down at this point, but.
2: Well, send us your storm stories. I mean, I guess living in Atlanta, we're most likely to experience tornadoes, hurricanes. We get, we get pretty heavy hurricanes from time to time. Um, not coastal levels, of course. And then the occasional freak ice storm. Oh, that's true. We had
3: one of those a couple years ago.
2: So feel free to share your most interesting storm stories with us, either on Facebook, on our Twitter at Mist in History. You can email them to us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We'd be interested. I mean, those are everybody likes freakish weather stories, right?
3: That's true. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the storms that we talked about today and some additional ones, we have a great article on our site called 10 Most Destructive Storms. You can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics,
2: visit howstuffworks.com.
1: Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck?
3: host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a
1: divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting
3: things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be
1: celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.